Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. Hello, everyone. My name is Thane Stenner. I'm your host of this uh, BNN Bloomberg Smart Wealth Podcast, which is a monthly podcast that I get the privilege of uh, hosting and interviewing some pioneers and leaders in different industries on various topics uh, every month. So welcome, everybody. I have a very special guest uh, with me uh, here today. His name is Ben Slager. He's uh, a top uh, lawyer here based in Vancouver. Um, and I'll give you a little bit more uh, background on him. But before I do, Ben, welcome. Just want to say a quick hello before I get into your bio. Uh, delighted to be here, Thane. Looking forward to our discussion. <clears throat> likewise, likewise. So Ben and I have known each other uh, personally and professionally for about 15 years now, and I can speak to the fact that uh, he's a highly engaging professional and a very astute investor. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, interviewing him today and bringing out some of his uh, knowledge and expertise and nuggets for uh, each of you to, to listen in on. So let me give you a little bit of background on Ben uh, Slager. He's the founder, uh, founding partner and CEO of Mogan Daniels Slager LLP, believed to be uh, Western Canada's leading M&A boutique in the private, small and mid-cap uh, market space by deal volume. Uh, ben has over 20 years of experience uh, representing clients in the M&A space, uh, private equity, angel, venture capital transactions, and a host of other complex uh, business law matters. Uh, the organization Best Lawyers has named Ben Vancouver's Venture Lawyer of the Year in 2022, as well as uh, being top in the category in M&A and venture capital categories over the last number of years. So uh, recognized by his peers and by his industry as being one of uh, the, the most astute lawyers uh, in the deal space, I would say, uh, uh, in Canada. Ben is also a very active angel investor. He's currently invested in over 20 early stage companies in Canada and the United States <clears throat> with an industrial health medical device and device um, or med tech and device emphasis. Ben serves on the board and as chair of a, a couple of these companies and also serves as an informal board advisor to several. Ben is also the co-chair of the Vancouver community of Tiger 21, which is uh, North America's preeminent peer-to-peer -peer learning group for successful uh, active entrepreneurs who are stewarding personal wealth of at least 20 million plus, which now has actually 30 members in Vancouver and over 1,200 members around the world. So uh, Ben's very active in a lot of different things. On the personal front, um, Ben is proud of saying that he's worked on uh, and invested in some of British Columbia's largest and also some of its smallest transactions. Lastly, Ben is an author of an odd and some might say charming little book about a headless chicken, which is available on Amazon. I think it's had uh, you know 38 or 49 sales to date, but it's called Flight of the Headless Chicken. Can living from the heart give chickens wings that work? And claims that his greatest accomplishment in life, I would say the greatest M&A transaction he's done in life has been identifying and securing his wife and life partner, Maureen, who's a sweetheart, in grade seven. 
and then convincing her to stick with him through all of life's winding roads, even after her many years of due diligence on him. So with that bio in mind, Ben, why don't we get started? Sounds great. Um, uh, by the way, my, my mom sent along uh, a few additions to the intro. I don't know if you received those, but she had. No, no, oh, please, yeah, do, so, please do. Yes, yeah, so I'll, 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 it, it would probably take another half hour or so, but uh, okay. you, got, you got to love your mother out there. Yeah, okay, this is good to hear. Um, so, you, you know, you wove that in there. You mentioned here you did your duty, duty as a son. This is good. So, so let's get into the uh, the thick of things here. So, um, you know, you're a key ad trusted advisor to, to many private companies when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. So I've got, you know, a number of questions about this, but we'll start off with, you know, what's changing in the current market as far as number of deals, um, nature of the deal terms that you're seeing, risk appetite, risk allocation, financing, and other covenants today in, in the deals that you're looking at today. Okay, so what I'll do is is I'll break it down uh, into two categories uh, because MDS, uh, we do work in what I would call conventional private equity, uh, private mid-market, and then uh, venture capital, uh, more tech-oriented early stage. Uh, so let's deal with the first category first. Um, in, in kind of the conventional space, uh, and, and we get both a healthy buy side and sell side uh, perspective acting for buyers and sellers as we do. Uh, in the conventional space, I would say there's not as much trauma as one might expect looking at structural forces uh, in the market. So, um, you know, private equity is uh, smart money. And so they find ways to bridge the gaps in valuation or the or the uncertainty in valuation. So what we're seeing is we're, we're still seeing, I would say, you know, within a margin of 10%, the same number of deals being done. They're taking a little bit longer. Uh, they're taking a little bit longer because there's more emphasis on Q of E, quality of earnings uh, assessments. There's more thinking, um, I think, about, uh, you know, you know external threats, like you know, supply chain or great resignation, all these themes that we hear about in the market. And so there's more due diligence being done on people and especially on key people. Um, uh, in interesting uh, note uh, and related to that, during uh, 2020 and, uh, and 2021, we did deals, uh, you know, probably 25 deals where buyer and seller did not meet in person. So very little due diligence done on key people because you, you, you might meet them on a screen for uh, for 20 minutes or senior managers longer, but there was no real diligence. Well, that's all coming back and it's coming back because uh, uh, buyers now have the time they need to do better deals. So they're taking a little bit longer. Um, the gaps in, in pricing uh, or valuation expectations are being uh, bridged uh, with earnouts. We're seeing, we're seeing many more earnouts and not just more, but uh, more depth. So whereas we used to see an earnout, it would be sort of for the gravy, maybe 10 or 15% of, uh, uh, of that bridge between uh, seller's expectations and buyer's uh, desire to pay. We're now seeing earnouts in the 30 to 40% range. Um, hmm. So more significant, more, you know, we're in uncertain times. Let's go together, uh, buyer and seller, and just see what the world brings. And if the value that you're telling me is there, um, then, then we'll share in it. 
Uh, we're also seeing some more uh, vendor take backs, uh, mm -hmm. which is really an earnout in another form, especially if it's profound, what I call profoundly subordinated, which means, you know, if a senior lender comes in on the buy side, uh, the vendor doesn't get paid back their financing until uh, not only are the bank covenants met, the senior uh, secured lenders, but there also has to be a, a working capital uh, reserve, maybe an earnings multiple above that before the vendor gets paid back. So that's deeply subordinated debt. So, so we're not we're not seeing the trauma yet. We're seeing, uh, I think, some unique uh, strategic uh, survival techniques uh, to keep deals flowing. That's on the conventional private equity side, the more mature businesses with actual earnings. Now let me take you to the uh, angel world and the venture world. Um, and I, uh, you mentioned off the top thing that, uh, that I invest in that space. Uh, and I, I do a lot of work in that space as advisor, investor, board of advisor. So I, I see it, that space, and I feel that space uh, wearing uh, multiple uh, hats. So in that space, um, uh, we're, so I, I probably have on my desk right now three, what we, you, some people call them recaps. Some people call them uh, resets. Um, these are companies that, that we're looking at either exiting or raising money in let's say the 50 to $100 million range um, in April, May of this year that are now in the five to $10 million range. And so uh, here we're, we're seeing uh, buyers and investors uh, uh, not just more diligent, way more suspicious. Uh, we're looking at uh, convertible debt. Uh, we're looking at these things called safes, which every, everybody out there might not know about, but they're the safe stands for simple agreement for future equity. It, it sort of operates like uh, convertible debt. It's a bit more complicated than that. Um, and uh, so we're seeing, um, again, buyers and investors pushing down uh, the risk um, in terms of time. So they, it's un they're uncertain times. They don't know what the valuations are. There are these huge gaps between uh, sellers and buyers and investors. And so they say, let's put off the argument, the negotiation uh, until we know more, until we have a better feel, you know, is the broader tech market gonna come back? Um, are you actually going to generate earnings uh, in the next year, like you say you are? Um, are you gonna get that FDA approval? Remember all tech's not created equal. There's, there's med tech and there's pharma and some of those are doing better than say the SaaS models. So uh, I, I'd say the other thing is, and this has surprised me, um, given our low Canadian dollar, we're not seeing uh, as much uh, US-based acquisition as I would have expected. We're seeing some, because of course that takes, you know, 35% uh, uh, edge off of pricing. Uh, but I think uh, US buyers, uh, particularly in the earlier stages, are still seeing quite robust on the, on the more mature business, the private equity side, but in the early stage companies, I think they are sort of licking their wounds a bit and protecting uh, cash. So lots of lots of changes, lots of creative ways to deal with uncertainty, but still, um, uh, there's definitely been a, uh, on the venture and angel side a, a real compression um, on valuations. And and you know people that invest in that space will say, oh no, we're, you know we're not we're not in the market. So I'm so glad I'm I'm not in the public markets. But let me tell you, there is a lot of pain in the uh, private uh, venture market space. Excellent, excellent comments. Uh, so Ben, you know before we go on to our next kind of formal question. So 
what is it that you try to do as a top lawyer to try to bring people together? Like what, what are some of the skills that you are, that you have intuitively? Uh, Cause I've observed you professionally and personally, and I, we'll just talk about the professional for now. Um, but basically I've seen you do some remarkable things with people at impasses and, you know, a challenging points. So mm. how is it that you have that stick handling capability? Uh, well, let me, uh, let me uh, break it that, that down into two categories. So I'll talk M&A first. And then a lot of what I seem to do um, has to do with uh, conflict um, uh, mediation. So, and, and, Surprise, surprise! Sometimes conflict uh, manifests in in M and A, so they're not they're not isolated. That's for sure. So in in, in an M and A or uh, financing uh, context, it is and and you you will have heard other professionals say this, but you can't emphasize it enough. And there's nothing uh, cute or cliche about it. It's all about alignment. Um, and what does alignment mean? And who's who? What what does the network involved in alignment? Well. It's, it's alignment, uh, it means, you know, what are, your, um, what are your expectations for this business, both on the buy and sell side? Who is going to be key to delivering? So it's, it's talking, often when we're doing a, an M&A deal, uh, the first discussions aren't on price, they're on who's gonna be involved in growing this business? You know, who are the key people? Um, are the sellers staying on board for how long? Uh, what are the expectations? I actually get, um, uh, because surprise, surprise, uh, many sellers uh, just want to, you know, get on to Zihuatanejo, Mexico uh, after a, cl a closing date, and many buyers want them to hang around. So, so you know, we'll do a page uh, uh, in the term sheet that talks about the expectations personally on the sellers. And so, again, we're getting after closing. So, we're getting to these matters of alignment. Um, what are the return expectations with private equity? Um, of course, they have uh, a build and, uh, uh, and amplify value and then exit within five to 10 years. Well, we need to have those discussions. What does that mean for the employees? Uh, sometimes uh, sellers are very protective of their employees. Are they aligned around the vision? So we spend, I, I think if you can do a lot of the prep work or the pre-work on alignment, it makes for a much more uh, peaceful uh, post-closing uh, transition of the business. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about the second category, which is, you know, actual um, direct conflicts between shareholders. Um, uh, let's say, you know, some shareholders want to sell, some don't, um, or between uh, management and, uh, uh, and the board. Uh, some of those uh, conflicts can be, uh, um, can be particularly charged. And of course, the resolution is meaningful for the, for the company and to retain value. Um, with those kinds of conflicts, my approach is, is centered on alignment, but it's actually trying to get to the root of positions. So um, if I'm, in fact, I'm dealing with a situation right now where I have a founder uh, CEO, and uh, it's clear that most of the board members want that CEO uh, to move on, uh, but they also uh, realize that they need the CEO for this transition period. And the CEO has uh, his or her uh, own desires and expectations. And so I, what I try to do is dig down as, as deep as I can to find out, okay, what is the fear? What's the motivation? What's the excitement that's driving that 
uh, those that decision making, and let's see if we can meet that at the same time meeting the the root drivers, the root motivators um, on the other side, and then matching uh, uh, kind of uh, expectations and motivations as opposed to just dealing with being what's being said or what's being written at the top level. And so it's really getting down to the the root uh, drivers because I find that the deeper you go with people. Uh, the more commonality there is, you know, uh, boards and management, they want to create value. They want to create value for the, for the whole ecosystem of stakeholders. And so you can get away or get, get away from all the personal issues, the ego issues and get down to, okay, how do we create a, a functional and fair transition and maintain or even amplify value for all the stakeholders. So if you go down to that base level, then that's, that generally produce, uh, produces a strong foundation which to move forward. So it, it has to do with, it, you know, it's easy to be kind of triggered and people do get triggered in these processes because there's lots of emotion and there's ego and there's lots of money involved. But if you take it back a step, give, give the, 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 the situation time to breathe, give the people time to breathe, and then uh, find that common ground and build up, it makes all the difference. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Netflix series, uh, where there's a fixer. Uh, her name is Olivia Pope. Olivia Pope. I don't know if you've seen the show, but her number one question to her clients when they come in with a problem or an issue or trying to resolve something, she'd say, what do you want? Yes, exactly. And she repeat it. What yeah. do you want? She would get, yes. she pushed them on it. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We all have our our foibles and, and uh, desires and things that we want to try to see as outcomes. And so you're, in essence, you're actually acting as a facilitator. So yes. you're a leader. Right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, very. Yeah. Very much so. Well, that's, that's exactly the way I would describe it. And 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 so on a variation of that question, I often ask, especially on the sell side, with uh, you know these founders that have built a business, you know, where what you know what does the successful exit look like to you? Where are you going to be in three years? I don't say five years because people have a hard time thinking that far out. And what are you most fearful of during this process? And it's really interesting the kinds of responses uh, that, that you get. And that helps shape the whole process because now you're getting to the root of what's driving people. We'll take a quick break here and we'll come back shortly. Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform subscribe now welcome back everybody i'm thane stinner i'm here with special guest ben slager we're going to hop right back into some more questions uh for this interview so next question for you then is you know what are some of the key mistakes made in m a or financing projects for private companies that you've seen over the years like what would be the top two or three that you have seen that are common mm -hmm but meaningful mistakes mm -hmm. then i'll ask you the converse side what have been some of the best practices let's start with the mistake side um okay i'll start in the uh the earlier stage uh company world so and this this is easy to say and 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 it's easy to observe um too many companies um were too lean in in terms of raising uh when the harvest was ripe so uh i'm dealing with a number of companies that you know, were offered uh, 20 million or 50 million and only wanted to take five or 10 because the founders, you know, didn't want to give up control. And, and now what's happening, uh, you know, we're coming into in Q1 and, and 2023, they're going to be looking to raise money 
and uh, they're going to be uh, raising at you know 60% or less of their valuation, and so they're going to lose a lot more. So it's it's holding things too tight, um, wanting uh, uh, to keep too much control, not letting others in. Uh, so I've seen that in spades. Um, and this, and then this would be a transition, or a, a, this would cover both spaces, uh, both the mature and the early stage. And that is not uh, creating uh, healthy redundancies within the within the firm. So, as people out there will know, uh, if you uh, if you want to sell your business, and you are you personally as a founder or a CEO or whatever whatever your role may be, are integral to the, that business and to the goodwill in that business, you've just reduced the value of, on a sale significantly. So you need to create redundancies. Uh, redundancies, I mean, we have redundancies, we have backup uh, plans in our technology. Um, you know, we, we, we try to avoid uh, customer concentration risk, but oftentimes founders, because they like control and you know, it, control has worked for them, that's how they built a successful business, um, they uh, tend not to focus on creating redundancies. A really strong 2IC, someone that's the natural organic successor in the business. Yeah. And so uh, I, I deal with a lot of sellers who would love to sell their business, uh, but the buyers are very leery and very wary because they know that when that founder leaves, uh, he or she is going to be taking uh, so much of the goodwill and the relationships. Uh, not, and these aren't just, Customer relationships, employee relationships, going to be taking the culture with them. If you don't have a, a, a second in command that can really wave uh, the company's culture cultural flag, and continue to build on that special culture that uh, that you have developed over time, then then you know sophisticated buyers will sense that that the a great deal of the value, or at least a meaningful amount, will be walking out the door on the closing date. And so that is a huge mistake, and and it and it's hard to do. And when you're building a business and growing a business and, and you know, businesses that people want to acquire are usually uh, high growth businesses, you, you, it's one of those things that you kind of put on the back burner, and, but it, uh, uh, it comes back to haunt you. The, the other thing, which is kind of more practical and, and, and measurable, and, and I, I, this is something that I, uh, I wave a flag on uh, from time to time at conferences and, and things, is something very simple. It's a little bit, little, it, has a, it has a price tag, but it's quite simple, audited financial statements. So um, many of the businesses I deal with, and this is going crossing the spectrum, early stage to uh, later stage, have notice to reader or, or uh, uh, review engagement financials. You would be surprised. Um, so especially actually in the early stage, uh, for another, if you have uh, minimal uh, transactions, and many of these companies do, um, for another $10,000, you can get audited financial statements. Well, buyers love audited financial statements and investors love audited financial statements. So it's to me, it's a no-brainer. It's the best investment you can make. Um, and maybe it's $15,000, but it saves so much more due diligence. It, it creates trust and M&A, a successful M&A is all about uh, trust creation and preservation. And um, uh, and it actually creates some some internal disciplines. Auditors don't just look at your numbers; they actually also recommend systems. And I see that not only in the early stage space, but in the uh, uh, the more mature space. Lots of notice to reader financial statements, 
Uh, whereas, you know, in, now with a higher number of transactions, you know, it might be twenty or thirty thousand dollars more. But again, on a on a fifty million dollar deal, um, you know, you might get a ten uh, x uh, return on that uh, forty or fifty thousand dollars that you're paying for audited financials easily. So uh, to me, that's uh, that's one I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, but it's an easy fix, um, and the value I think is just tremendous. Uh, and I'll add one more one more mistake. It's just because I live in the world of mistakes. Um, <laughs> Uh, and that is um, on the sell side. Now, and you'll hear stories. There's there's some good stories out there about uh, uh, sellers who've done it themselves. Um, but uh, I will say that uh, getting an investment bank, an M&A advisor, investment bankers, how they refer to them generally in the U.S. Here in Canada, we often refer to them as M&A advisors to generate an auction uh, to create that competitive tension. Um, I, I have seen uh, on a you know on a thirty million dollar deal that make a ten million dollar uh, difference just from the competitive tension. Um, so that's right there. That's thirty uh, percent. Uh, and uh, yeah, they they you know they'll take a million dollar check or uh, depending on this on the success. Uh, but again, um, money really really well spent. And and M and A advisors, investment bankers have a knack. It's their training. Uh, building trust in an M&A uh, process and uh, or a financing process and trust is everything. Hmm. So on the best practices, uh, audited, audited financial statements, competitive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And no, uh, uh, it's a good question. So some of the best, um, some of the best, most successful transactions um, I've seen have been finding, uh, have resulted from finding uh, the right buyer. Um, so again, this is a sell side uh, perspective. I've got my sell side hat on. And uh, so we have, uh, we've acted for clients who've gone out and uh, sort of locally, maybe just, you know, in Canada, maybe picked away at a couple of potential strategic buyers uh, in Europe, maybe one or two in, 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 uh, in the US, but didn't run a full process. And, you know, they, they had, you know, if we were talking multiples of EBITDA, earnings before interest tax and depreciation, um, you know, they, they got sort of eight to, you know, the 10X and, and, they, and, it, and they were bigger numbers than they ever thought they would get. Um, we encouraged them to hire uh, an investment bank to run a, a process. And suddenly there's a strategic buyer out there, not usually not financial buyers, but a strategic buyer where this will, you know, this plug-in of this, uh, uh, this group of assets, this business, well, you know, they'll, this buyer will get a return of, you know, two or three X, and then you multiply that in and suddenly the target is getting 15 X. And uh, which, so, so a healthy process um, uh, leads to a better outcome. But then uh, the other, well, uh, I was gonna get it back into the mistakes world because I, I live in that world, but, but what I've seen on, uh, as a very healthy uh, and uh, productive uh, approach to investment banking and M&A is, or in, in bringing in finance and M&A is to, uh, to do the self scrub. So you do diligence on yourself. You order a, a Q of E, quality of earnings uh, uh, report and do that on yourself and not, not four months before M&A or financing, but a year or maybe even two years. You, you bring in a consultant. Um, you, you, well, you can actually create an M&A uh, group and say in two years I want, I'm looking at M&A consist of a lawyer maybe yeah. a company accountant uh, probably an M&A expert um, 
and probably an a, a key HR um, uh, uh, consultant, I guess I would call them, and say, what do I need to do to make a more robust business and to make sure I don't run into those succession problems, uh, to make sure I don't run into uh, due diligence issues or financial issues. And then uh, M&A is not just a, um, uh, it's not just a thought at some point in time, it's actually a whole thinking process. And that group becomes your, your trusted advisor team for the M&A uh, process or the financing process. And the results uh, are dramatically different. Um, and you've gotten in front of all of the, uh, the due diligence issues that you might have, uh, you know, that, that uh, strange uh, uh, HR claim or this workplace accident or this uh, bug in your technology or this customer uh, churn, you know, material customer churn. What did that mean for the business? You understand it, you frame it, you get in front of it, and then you, you lead with uh, your best foot forward with the strength of that team behind you. But if, um, and so those, those are, that, that dynamic has resulted in some of the best deals I've seen. Gotcha. So I'm going to rapid fire a few other questions at you, and then I'll slow it down a little bit. So how many deals have you worked on in your career so far as a, as mm -hmm. a corporate M&A lawyer? Yeah, I would say, uh, well, a year ago or so, I was saying 300. Um, so probably, yeah, so about, probably about 330, 350 deals. Uh, that and that's just um, M and A, not that doesn't include financings, and that doesn't include uh, the stuff that I do uh, personally. So mm. I've probably seen, yeah, closer to 500 deals. Um, uh, well, it doesn't include the deals that 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 haven't happened. So yeah, so I've I've seen a, a great great many deals across the spectrum. Other than in the public sector, I don't deal uh, in the public sector. Gotcha, gotcha. And as far as the range of size of transactions say what's been your biggest deal that you worked on and what was your role and, and then typically what would be your smallest deal these days well and and as i say i like to work on some of bc's smallest and some of its largest deals so uh, some of and some of canada's i guess uh so i would say well to give you an example i'm i'm not i'm not actually doing the work but i i took this project on for a number of reasons but there's a there's a little coffee shop in Vancouver. I love the coffee, so we're uh, we're uh, doing that uh, that deal for them. I can't name the the shop, but it's yep. a small deal. Um, and then I would, you know, one of the deals I worked on was um, uh, there are two big, so through British Columbia. For those of you out there that aren't from British Columbia, uh, forestry is a big deal here, and two of the big names in forestry uh, for years and years were uh, Canfor and Slocan, and uh, um, there's still a debate about whether Canfor swallowed up Slocan. Uh, it was framed as a merger, but anyways, I worked on that deal. That was probably, I'm going to say, 14 years ago, and it was, a, I think, it was about a billion dollars uh, the, the combined entity. And so, but those would be outliers. Uh, typically, our our deals and my deals are sort of in the, I would say, five million to 300 million dollar uh, range. Um, and beyond that, you start to get into uh, kind of uh, the public sphere. And sure. again, we, we prepare companies to go public, but we don't take them there. So a couple other questions around this particular topic. Um, so do you prefer to work for the buy side or the sell side? Um, personally, uh, so at, at our, our firm, MDS, uh, acts on the spectrum. And so we have a, <clears throat> three or four private equity um, clients. So they're, they're both buy and sell. Um, we have a few large 
corporates that are acquisitive. And so we're often acting uh, on the buy. But my so we, we do certainly do both and probably in about even numbers. But but from a, you know, and the luxury of getting a little bit more senior in your profession is that you you can start to take on projects that uh, give you joy. And I would say I get more joy acting for the sellers uh, because, uh, and the, especially if the sellers are founders, uh, because you you get to be there for the last part of what's often an incredible story, and you get to you get to uh, hear their stories of sacrifice, of the hard work, of the difficult decisions, of the great failures they've had. You know, uh, m- many of them have had uh, struggles in other businesses, have learned some hard lessons. And, and then you're there for, um, for the joy of the sale and the culmination of this, uh, this great journey. And uh, uh, I also, I find a lot of our sellers um, uh, tend to be these ones that, uh, that have had their head down for, you know, 20 or 30 years. And, uh, um, and so they've been really, uh, really focused and they've never sold a business before. They may have bought or sold a house, um, but that's, you know, it's a very different uh, dynamic. And so they are, you know, they come to us and they are, they are the proverbial deer in the headlights. And, and one of the things that I found, uh, particularly at this stage of my career, uh, a real joy for me and a real, it gives me a real sense of purpose uh, is to, this idea of bringing peace um, in a really stressful process. And so I like to get there uh, with the, with the founders, uh, shoulder to shoulder, and just per- you know, kind of get in front of issues and bring as much peace to a very, very stressful process uh, as I can. Um, and then I, I find that personally very rewarding. So I, I would say, you know, with, with apologies to the, uh, uh, the buyers out there that I, I act for, I really enjoy the personal, the uh, connection, the intimacy that comes with acting with sellers who are, especially those that are doing it for the first time. Well, well said. Uh... So maybe discuss uh, you know something that's been a pretty unique practice I think that you've embedded within your firm is around success fees like how mm-hmm. you structure you know your fees right. and you know, that's a natural question you know entrepreneurs and business owners would always ask but how do your fees work generally mm-hmm. So I I grew up in a, a large firm here in Vancouver now it's not large by New York or or uh, Toronto uh, standards, but one of the larger firms, uh, certainly in, in Western Canada. And um, I had uh, I'd mentioned this idea of a fixed fee a few times, including when I was a, a, a first year partner. And, and it was clear, I, it was just falling on deaf ears. Now this was, this was you know, 15 years ago. Um, and, uh, but I, what I wanted to do, and it's consistent with this kind of purpose of bringing peace to a stressful process. What I was getting tired of is, you know, doing all this work on a deal, sending out our invoice, and the client's like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't believe it. You know, we're, and, and then having what should be a joyful uh, discussion, having another negotiation around fees. And it's not, it's not good for them, it's not good for us in terms of the feeling. And so I wanted to uh, get to a fixed fee. Um, on deals and fixed fees and M and A are very hard to do, um, and you have to have a you have to have a model that works for it. And so one of the things I've discovered is is you can do fixed fee if you have high volume of deals. You can also do fixed fee uh, if you have um, uh, lots and lots of experience. 
because while you can never predict everything that's going to go wrong and um uh, and we've uh, we can never say we've seen it all in terms of things that can go wrong or stress points i mean i've i've had a deal fall apart 3 days before closing over a an 85 you know, this was a 35 million dollar deal over an 85 dollar air permit um i mean who who would have uh, dreamt now the deal came back but an 85 dollar air permit um in a factory uh, so you can never predict uh, the problems that are going to come out of the woodwork and uh, so fixed fee that make, makes fixed fee very hard but we've now we've seen we haven't seen all of it but we've seen most of it and so we have uh, a true fixed fee um that excludes it has a couple of exclusions for tax which we don't do and things like that and and the market has really um uh, kind of gobbled that up and 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 we can't take all the credit for it because we've sort of built that on the uh, investment banking uh model so investment bankers will will they'll have a work fee but generally most of their compensation on deals is uh percentage based and so now we're coming up alongside that as a percentage and there's nothing that uh, um, uh, private equity likes better but even sellers like better than certainty in a deal process and so we are now a line item uh, in terms of our cost and so uh they're not afraid to call us in the course of a deal because they don't hear the uh the timer going on which means that they ask more questions sooner in the process, which is a virtuous cycle because it leads to a better process. Now we can get in front of issues and, and we can we have greater certainty that deal, deal will close. So that's been uh, a real joy for me as an entrepreneur is working on that with my, uh, my partners and really fine tuning that. And then because I don't want this to turn into an infomercial, I'll, I'll give you one other, um, and this just goes, uh, uh, it kind of feeds my entrepreneurial spirit. We have what's called a broken deal discount. And so with that, we'll actually give you a discount if the deal doesn't uh, uh, come together. And then if it does come together, you pay a premium and the discounts, you know, like 50% of the premium is like 20%. The reason for that is that most deals close. And so we're trying to get entrepreneurial in our, uh, you know, kind of disrupt uh, the field of legal services, which has kind of been wedded to the hourly rate for uh, years and years. And I just, you know, I love speaking the language of uh, entrepreneurs and of business. And, and it seems to be really, uh, resonating with the market. Hmm, excellent answer. So, you know, on a pragmatic issue, I know, you know, you've, you've seen a lot of deals, potential deals in your career. Uh, you've, dealt, you've worked on a lot. Um, and at this point in your life and career, I think uh, it would be, I think it would be fair to say that you have more people wanting to engage with you and your firm than you have time for. So hmm. how do you practically uh sift through the opportunities of which uh engagements to take on or not at this mm -hmm. point in your career that's a good good question one that our uh, our partnership was just discussing last week uh because uh, you're you're right there's uh the uh the uh the demands are uh, are in, are exceeding supply in terms of our capacity um so uh i think it actually comes back to alignment um, and, and, and I don't mean this again, it's not, uh, in a, um, not even a, it's not a whimsical thing, but you know, what will give us joy. So we're now being more selective. It's the beauty of, of having had some success in the market. Uh, we're taking on projects that are meaningful to us, whether it's because, you know, the technology, uh, in the company is meaningful, or we enjoy working with the people that are driving the, the company. 
Um, we're very loyal. So uh, for uh, clients that have been with us and, and grown up with us over the last uh, 10 years, the MDS has been around for 10 years. You know, we continue to honor them as clients. Um, we, uh, I'm probably not allowed to say this on the, on the, uh, on this cast, but uh, you know, we don't, we're, we're not working with assholes anymore, um, which I quite, uh, I quite enjoy being able to apply that filter. Um, and uh, you know, our, we, we say uh, uh, value focused, values driven um, in our, that's our tagline. And we're really looking for ways that we can add value. So I will take on, you know, I, I took on a, a, a complete outlier. Um, it was, it had nothing to do with M&A or, or finance. It was a, as the BC's newest mine, copper gold mine uh, called Red Chris. And they were doing a, a negotiating with First Nations, the Taltan First Nation. Uh, it was a ridiculously complex, you know, 30 year small P partnership. And um, it made no sense for me to take it on, made no sense for MDS. Um, but um, I had a little history with the project and I knew some of the people and I took it on because um, I thought I could have a meaningful impact and it turned out to be, a, I think a six or seven year negotiation. And, you know, I don't know, three or 400 pages of documents. Um, and it was, uh, but, and it was very rewarding. In fact, at the closing dinner, for that project, I read my my little book, which uh, which uh, brought a few chuckles, um, maybe more than a few. There's also some wine involved, but uh, the book was helpful. Um, and so, so I think I think we're yeah we're trying to be more intentional. We're not taking we're certainly not taking everything in. We're looking you know we're sort of eighty percent M and A so and 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 finance, and so uh, we're very selective on the stuff that's not in that space, and we're trying to. We're, we, you know, we'll act, you know, once in a while, we'll take on a, a let's say a million dollar acquisition if the buyer, we're acting for the buyer and the buyer is in a consolidation play. And, uh, you know, uh, because we know that there'll be a serial acquirer. So we, we're trying to think strategically. Uh, we're also trying to hire up so that we can scale up, uh, but very, very difficult in this market, as in many um, businesses and professions to get, uh, to get good people, especially good people that can work with entrepreneurs who, um, for those of you that are out there that are entrepreneurs, are, can be really hard to work with, wonderful to work with, but hard to keep up with. That's great. We'll take a quick pause there for a minute and we'll be back shortly. Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Thane Stenner. I'm here with Ben Slager, uh, conducting an interview for season two, our first session. So let's jump right back in. So uh, let's pivot to something else that I know is near and dear to your heart and my heart, and that's uh, Tiger 21. Mm -hmm. You're, uh, I think you've been a chair, or sorry, a co-chair for the Vancouver community, roughly 30 members now. Uh, and Tiger is a you know, a peer-to-peer -peer, um, network uh, throughout the world, but mostly North America has roughly 1200 members. So you're a co-chair uh, and you're you know, a key facilitator for that group and spokesperson for that group here in the BC marketplace. So, so why did you get involved in Tiger 10 years ago and why are you still involved in Tiger today? Well, 10, it's, and it's a different answer uh, 10 years ago than, than today, that's for sure. Um, and uh, 10 years ago um, was a a very pivotal uh, point in my life when uh, Tiger, uh, that, that opportunity uh, came, came across my desk from a really good friend of mine. Um, 
And, uh, and at that time, I was uh, looking to, so I would have been in my early 40s, um, actually early 20s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and uh, I, was, I was looking to make that leap to the trusted advisor role. And I thought, what better way to become a, a trusted advisor? And for me, a trusted advisor means you're advising the whole. So it's not just the business. It's the founders, you know, you're, you understand all the inputs and outputs in the founders, like, you know, struggles with their family, um, personal struggles, their weak spots, blind spots, you know, their gifts, like understanding the whole of the, uh, of the client. And, uh, and that's what Tiger 21 is. It's, it's, a, it's a place and a space where you get to explore the whole of these entrepreneurs. And so that was what intrigued me initially, because I thought it would be a natural um, stepping stone, a natural place of learning uh, to, for me to evolve. Um, now, I will tell you this, uh, every year, so I've been sharing uh, with uh, Roxana for, uh, yeah, over 10 years, uh, which means I should be getting some kind of a diamond pin or something. I'll have to let them know at head office. Um, uh, uh, but every year I do an assessment. Should I, you know, because I have, you know, to your point earlier, too many things on the go. Um, is, is Tiger... 21 is that sharing experience still pouring into me is it still giving me life and am I still giving it life like am I getting stale and so every year I do that assessment and so far you know 10 years in a row I've decided yes it's it's giving me energy um, I'm learning lots um, and and I feel like I'm still adding value um, and so uh, so that's why I've continued and I'll be going through that reflection assessment reassessment here in uh, December with with Maureen we'll we sort of year end do our reflections and what, what are the things that are life-giving and should we be pouring our limited time and energy into and, and what are the things that maybe it's time to move on um, but but uh, but a key reason and it came up uh, a few days ago when I was talking with a friend who asked me about mentors and uh, in my life and I'm not one that readily that, that has you know uh, what I think of as kind of a conventional mentor you know somebody you meet with every two weeks who really knows you well has known you for 15 years and you know and and they're they're in the same business maybe or profession and you're learning from them and following in their shoes and 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 uh you know I have a kind of a constellation of mentors and I would say uh, my Tiger 21 members have become key uh a key part of that constellation so I I keep learning from them um and I, I hate to say it uh but I keep learning mainly from their mistakes <laughs> so uh, which you know is kind of a recurring theme in life uh, you learn so much more from the mistakes but but learning from their stories uh, as well and and uh, it's been a real joy a real life-giving uh, piece of my life so what would you say uh, you know are kind of the next steps or in your future professionally uh, personally mm -hmm. you know at this mm -hmm. stage life if you just had to look out you know five ten years or as you say to your entrepreneurs the next three years why don't we yeah. just talk about the next three years well i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna take your your first uh, question because i'm about to sign a uh, sign of a new five-year lease so i have to uh, <laughs> so i have to stick with the five years otherwise my partners will be saying wait wait what um so it's a complicated question um <clears throat> there are a lot of factors. So one of the factors is, of course, you know, I'm not I'm not a lone wolf as much as I like to think I am. I have uh, a wife of uh, coming on, you know, it'll be 30 years next year, um, and uh, um, and so you know she has her gifts and her future, 
um, and and has a huge brain and and lots of things that she likes to do. So I've got to calibrate for that. Um, we we don't walk this journey alone. Um, you know, you've got to think about health. You've got to think about where, where do you want to live in the world. But I'll, I'll share with you some some things I'm thinking about. Um, and people around me have always thought that I was going to jump ship and join one of these uh, tech companies that I'm invested in or advisor to. And the thoughts occurred to me from time to time, but I've, I'm have i probably a little bit, I, I think one of the beauties of doing what I do is I get to see into lots of different businesses, much like yeah. the, the investment bankers. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy puzzling through, learning new models, um, you know, connecting dots. And so I don't think that's a risk for me. Um, I'm recently, the last year, become CEO of the firm. And so I'm I'm enjoying building the, the business building part of that and the energy that comes from that. Um, I, I do, um, uh, you know, we talk in Tiger 21 about this evolution from success to significance. And, um, you know, and that's, for me, it's not an ego driven thing, at least I hope it's not, but I would, I would like to look for ways in the world or in the community um, uh, and maybe even a smaller subset than that of making ways I can really make a difference. And maybe that's in um, mentoring young people more, young entrepreneurs more. Um, I sometimes think about um, either formal or informal um, places in um, politics. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I've had some early discussions uh, with, with key people in my life for, in that regard. Um, I'm enjoying uh, I'm enjoying the law firm and 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 the unique value uh, that we're that we're trying to build, not just for uh, our clients, but for the people that work here. I really want this to be an invigorating place for them to work, and that's hard to find in in corporate law. Um, and so, if we can achieve that, that would be a value. So, I guess I guess I'm just looking for other ways um, that I can pour more into. Um, the, the world and the community around me. And, uh, and, and I've also, I guess I say, I've got to calibrate that with health, you know, uh, considerations and, uh, um, and, uh, and my wife's uh, own, own uh, ambitions and, and worthy goals. So, so it'll be, it'll be interesting. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. And uh, yeah, you've never, to me, since I've known you, you've never uh, leaned away from things. You tend to lean into things and really figure it out. And, I think it's wise that you're looking for things that continue to energize you and your wife and your family and your personal and uh, professional pursuits. So I'm going to give you this last opportunity. Any other little pearls of nug nuggets you want to kind of leave our audience with to finish off this interview today? What would they be, if if any? Um, you know, I think a lot. In fact, I had a breakfast meeting this morning um, with a fellow who's uh, very successful um, entrepreneur in his own right. Uh, he's uh, early 60s, I would say, and he's come back to uh, to help lead a uh, med tech company. You know, a little company with a $10 million valuation. And you know, meanwhile, he sold uh, his other business for uh, hundreds of millions of dollars and doesn't need the money. Um, and, I, and so I asked him, I said, why, why are you doing this? And, he's, and he said, you know, I really enjoy working with young people. And I, I, I feel their energy, you know, I've just got a lot more juice left. I'm learning from them. Yes, they're learning from him, but he's learning from them and feeding off of them. And so, you know, I guess one of the things I think about a lot, especially 
as I look at building out uh, our law firm and, and helping some of these companies that I work with build out their teams. And as we hear about structural challenges like the great resignation and, and how do you, you know, how do you engage Gen X or, or Gen Y and Gen Z and, and uh, Gen X is hard enough. I, I think I'm part of that generation, but uh, Gen Y and Gen Z, um, I, I guess I would encourage uh, people not to get uh, uh, discouraged. <laughs> Um, because there's, I think there are some, I think there are some generalizations and maybe some misperceptions about, um, about the inability of this next generation to engage about their, how soft they are, how needy they are. There's some of that, some of that's true. Um, but I think there is a great energy. Um, I see it in my daughters. I see it in, um, many young people that I work with. Um, there's, and, and especially if you think globally as opposed to just locally, this, this next generation of young people, um, you know, have, have, uh, have deep and important energy and ideas. And, you know, you look at what's happening in, in uh, China. I was watching last night, the, the uh, protests. And guess who's on the street uh, protesting uh, where China's going on free speech? It's not, you know, it's not the guys like, like us and, and, and older people, it's the young people. And they're, they're agitating for change. And so, um, you know, as I think about what's for me coming up for me next, as I think about, you know, the next generation of entrepreneurs, I was at a conference last week, um, 17,000 entrepreneurs in Canada, and I don't know how they define that. I suppose a restaurateur could be an entrepreneur, um, uh, are, are over 65. So, so let's think about 17,000 over 65. So we have a whole generation of new entrepreneurs coming up and they'll need mentoring and uh, they'll need guidance, uh, but they also have a lot of energy and ideas to give. And so I, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking to be more engaged um, with this next generation. And, and I would encourage others to, you know, there's lots of grit out there in this generation. There's lots of smarts. Uh, they're probably better educated and certainly more global thinking than we were coming up. And so, yeah, I just like to encourage the, the uh, older entrepreneurs uh, out there to uh, keep giving in, just like this fellow that I met this morning, who's, uh, and, and I, I can tell you, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, it will invigorate you um, in really meaningful ways. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ben, for uh, taking the time out of your very busy schedule. I know how busy you are these days, especially for your end, uh, to kind of uh, share your your wisdom and nuggets with our audience. Uh, and on behalf of the B&M Bloomberg uh, Brand Studio team and our Smart Wealth podcast, just Loved having you on today, hmm. and this uh, this podcast will actually be released um, the first week of January. So it'll be kind of a, a New Year's kick uh, to actually kick off season an, two. An invigorating kick, good. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's actually kicking off season two. So we did okay, the first twelve uh, podcasts this last year. So you're actually the first guest of uh, season two, as they say in you know Netflix series. Um, oh, we got renewed. We got renewed. Exactly. Exactly. So. <laughs> Thank you once again. It's a real uh, pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, uh, please uh, tune in uh, to my next session in in January as well for the BNM Bloomberg uh, Smart Wealth Podcast. 
and thanks once again, uh, Ben, for a wonderful session. The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp. and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Can Accord is a member of the CIPF.